Hey everyone, it's Harry, and welcome to another episode of A2Easy. I have Dan here with me. Hello there. So, uh, what are we talking about today? It's more general surgery from me, and it's another big topic, pancreatitis. Oh, excellent. So this is where I ask you what pancreatitis is, and you say it's the inflammation of the pancreas. Okay, wow, okay, don't steal my thunder. Sorry, I just couldn't bear to hear you say it again. Rude. But yes, it's the inflammation of the pancreas. And histopathologically speaking, we can broadly class inflammation as either acute or chronic, so we can have acute or chronic pancreatitis. Today we will be focusing on the acute kind. Okay, so what causes acute pancreatitis? I'm so glad you asked. I was asked this during finals, and it's a very common question on a gen surge ward round. So I might not be teaching our listeners anything new if I say get smashed is the way you remember the causes. So what does get smashed stand for? Gallstones, ethanol, trauma, and then steroids, mumps, autoimmune, scorpion venom, hypertriglyceridemia, or hypercalcemia, ERCP, and finally, as always, drugs. So you just reeled that off to the examiner? No. Wait, what? So this is more of a tip for finals than third year OSCE, but never forget to classify your answers where possible. Yes, I know remembering a list is difficult enough, and perhaps remembering a classified list can actually be harder. However, I would be tactical in pointing out that the chances are, if you've heard of a mnemonic for the list of causes, the examiner's probably going to have heard of it too. Case in point, in third year, a junior doctor asked me the causes of acute pancreatitis, and I, ever the idiot, said scorpion venom, and he and sat down there as if I was like house or something. Okay, so what happened next? He just looked at me with like a raised eyebrow and said, ah, but what kind of scorpion venom? At which point I, of course, just crumbled into a small mound on the floor and was sort of unable to answer the question. So moral of the story, remember get smashed, but ideally classify your answers. It sounds a lot better than recounting off a list everyone in the room more senior than you already knows. And I wouldn't say scorpion venom unless they kept pushing you for more causes because otherwise they could just ask you ridiculous questions because you brought it up. Also, for those wondering, apparently it's a Trinidad scorpion. I, I was wondering. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so when in doubt, classify, or as you rightly deserved in that situation, die. Yeah, um, so just to give you an example, in finals I tried to say, causes could be inflammatory, such as gallstones, alcohol, hypercalcemia, hypertriglyceridemia, or autoimmune. But there are also some infectious causes, such as mumps, and iatrogenic causes such as post-ERCP, steroids, and azathioprine. Okay, good. So, bear in mind for future years, but if you can remember Get Smashed in third year, you're doing well? Absolutely. Now that we've got that list, I did just want to say why some of these things actually cause pancreatitis. As we know from the episode on biliary colic, gallstones tend to get stuck in places. If they get stuck after the point where the pancreatic duct meets the common bile duct, then the stone will obstruct the outflow of the pancreatic fluid as well. So, as you might remember from GCC Biology, Part of the secretion contents of the pancreas, exocrine, not endocrine here, remember, are to help with food breakdown, including protein. If those enzymes build up, they can activate and actually start to digest the pancreas rather than your food. This, as you can imagine, will cause inflammation. Alcohol is another big cause. Rather than blocking a stone or duct, alcohol causes swelling and spasm of the sphincter of Odi, which surrounds the exit of the hepatopancreatic duct uh, into the duodenum. This also leads to an effective blockage and build-up of pancreatic fluid, like before. So gallstones and alcohol both lead to pancreatitis by obstructing the pancreas outflow and causing accumulation of the digestive enzymes. Yep. Okay, so acute pancreatitis is mainly caused by alcohol and gallstones. Uh, which patient groups tend to develop this? 
gallstone-related pancreatitis is more common in middle-aged women. Think of your Fs for biliary colic. Alcohol-related pancreatitis, on the other hand, is more common in men. The important thing to note is that this is a common but serious condition, and with an estimated mortality of around 5% on average. Okay, and how do these patients present then? Well, the phrase epigastric pain, which radiates to the back, is very, very classic of pancreatitis. This makes sense when you think the pancreas is in the abdomen, and that it's a thin, long organ which is partly retroperitoneal, meaning it's more likely to cause back pain. Uh, any other differentials we should think about? Yeah, so when your male 65-year-old alcoholic walks in and has said back pain, do also consider a AAA, that's an abdominal aortic aneurysm, not something you'd want to miss. If a AAA is your primary differential, imaging is needed to confirm provided that it's stable. Okay, so fair enough, never forget AAA. Uh, but sticking to pancreatitis, are there any other features that might be present in the history? So typically they have the pain constantly, partially by sitting forwards, and it's been going on for a day or two before they come in. The pain is severe and associated with vomiting. During your history taking, you should screen for any clues to potential causes, i.e. previous gallstones, alcohol use, what medication they take, etc. Okay, and any signs for us to know or look out for? Yes, so these often come up in SBAs to help make it more obvious. So skin signs include Cullen sign and Gray's turners which both look like bruising. Cullen's is periumbilical, and so it's helpful to think of a C-shape for Cullen's, funnily enough, around the umbilicus. Grey-Turner's is bruising at the flanks, which you remember because you have two flanks and Grey-Turner's is two names. The reason you get this bruising is because of fluid tracking to a place where it shouldn't be. This can happen in a so-called necrotizing or hemorrhagic pancreatitis. So you could have necrotic fluid or blood tracking down in the retroperitoneum to the flanks, that causes grey turners, or it can track along the remnant of the umbilical ligament, which, as the name suggests, ends up at the umbilicus and causes cullens. The other abdominal sign that you don't want to miss is ascites. This is also about fluid being where it shouldn't be. Pancreatitis causes third spacing, which is where fluid enters the interstitial spaces, such as the peritoneal cavity, and that's literally called ascites. This is because of the major inflammatory response, which increases vascular permeability, in the hope to get all those white cells into the pancreas. The side effect is, is as cells can enter, fluid can leak out. So you have fluid leaking into peritoneal cavity. Okay, are these signs particularly specific or sensitive for pancreatitis? Uh, For pancreatitis, uh, I'm afraid not really, no. Lots of things can cause hemorrhage or necrotic fluid to enter these spaces, and lots of things cause ascites. However, they do suggest that this is a severe case of something potentially life-threatening. So think of them as like a clear warning sign that these patients are sick and that they should be escalated appropriately. Okay, so ascites, cullens and grey turners. Anything more general? If we think back to get smashed, signs related to gallstones and ethanol are probably key. So given that alcohol can cause chronic liver disease, we could look for palmar erythema, Jupiter's contracture in the hands, plus spider nevi and gynecomastia at the chest. Meanwhile, gallstones can acutely cause jaundice and icterus. The most general features we find in pancreatitis, however, are that patients are tender over the epigastrium, unsurprisingly, and can be febrile. Okay, so uh, at this point, we've taken the history, we've examined the patient. How do we further investigate them for pancreatitis? Well, the good news is you can make the diagnosis on clinical grounds. But in reality, we tend to do some blood and imaging. And what blood tests would you do? Since these patients are acutely unwell, 
quite a few. Um, and it's worth thinking of these in two categories, blood tests for diagnosis and blood tests for prognosis. To aid diagnosis, we look at blood enzymes, that's pancreatic amylase and lipase, which is helpfully easy to remember, I suppose. Each of these are raised typically three times the normal level that they have during pancreatitis. Research from a few years ago found that lipase was, and you don't need to remember this, 96% sensitive and 99% specific for acute pancreatitis. Meanwhile, amylase was only 78% sensitive. The upshot is that lipase is a better test. So pancreatic amylase and lipase raised three times normal. Lipase is more sensitive, but both are pretty specific. Yeah, so good diagnostic tests. Now we can talk about prognostic tests. These are based on the Glasgow IMRI criteria for acute pancreatitis. I think the main thing at third year stage is to know that the scoring system actually exists, and perhaps more importantly, not to confuse it with the Glasgow Blatchford score, which is the thing that's used in upper GI bleeds. Yeah, I mean, the naming is absolutely not helpful there. Indeed, but the thing I realised about half an hour ago is that Blatchford is for bleeds, so remember the Bs. But at least for the Glasgow IMRI, it has a mnemonic for the parts which spells pancreas. I'll put it on the notes section for those who are interested, I suppose, but long story short, it's calculated 48 hours after admission, and a score of three or higher means the patient is at risk for severe pancreatitis. The blood tests you need to calculate the score are an ABG, FBC, LFTs using these, and bone profile, which is for calcium levels, by the way. I would not learn these off by heart at all, which is why I've said them quickly, but knowing we need an ABG as well as some regular bloods would be ideal knowledge. Okay, so a Glasgow Emory score of three or more means possibly severe pancreatitis, and that broadly brings us to the end of our blood tests. Uh, is there any imaging that we might do? Often not required for the diagnosis itself, but an ultrasound of the biliary tree can help delineate the etiology as it might show gallstones. For reference, by the way, the pancreas does not show up an ultrasound very well, mostly because of overlying bowel gas, which happens because these patients actually get an ileus along with their ascites, and that's because the small bowel doesn't really like to peristals when it's sitting in all that acidic fluid. So this doesn't tell you much about pancreas, but you might see some gallstones in the ultrasound. Further imaging would include a CT after pelvis, which is the classic. But funnily enough, it actually tells you little about the cause, as it will frequently, one, miss gallstones. However, they are good for picking up any area of pancreatic necrosis. This is best done on day five onwards. This isn't an immediate test you do when they come into ED. The only reason to request a CT scan at admission is to exclude other potential causes. For example, a perforated duodenal ulcer, which can also cause a mild to moderate raised amylase and upper abdominal pain. So let's say we have a middle-aged alcoholic man who's coming with epigastric pain or vomiting. His lipase is raised and after further tests, his Glasgow MRI score is 5. How would you then manage this patient? Well, the sad thing here is there's not a lot we can do. Intervention is necessary, but mainly supportive. Therefore, from a conservative point of view, these patients need urgent admission. That's a really important thing to say. If mild, they can often manage on a surgical ward. However, if likely to be severe, as you suggest from what you just said, you need to think about HDU or ITU referral, which means talking to the critical care outreach team. Better to do it early rather than wait and have to call a crash team instead. Okay, so that kind of patient's at risk of being very unwell and we should speak to critical care outreach. Yeah, sorry, kind of depressing. That's probably the key thing here. In terms of what you would then want to do for them, it's about replacing the fluid that they are losing from one, the vomiting that they've got, and two, third spacing, as we already mentioned. That tends to mean giving them antiemetics, replacing their fluid loss with lots and lots of IVs, and rarely making them nil by mouth. At the same time, you can start some IV analgesia, and if they're not managing much orally, you could add an IV PPI, like a meprazole. 
And you might also want to consider catheterizing them to ensure you've got input and output because of all their loss. One last thing to consider is with alcohol-related pancreatitis. If they're chronically dependent on alcohol, you probably need to manage that too. And this is frankly an entire topic unto itself. Um, but the short answer here is consider chloride epoxide and Paprinex. And that's all I want to say. Okay, so to go over the main points there, admission with fluids, oxygen and analgesia, consider alcohol-specific treatment if that's the likely underlying cause. Anything else to note? So just to state this clearly, we do not, we do not give antibiotics for acute pancreatitis normally. Remember, of your causes, the only infectious one is mumps, and that's a virus. So it's a common misconception among students that we do give antibiotics. I don't really know why. I got asked at my finals as well. Finally, you should be aware of some of the complications of pancreatitis. Okay, off you go. (laughs) So we can divide these up, as we always should, into local and systemic complications. Let's talk about local first. These are problems with the pancreas, namely a pseudocyst, an abscess, which is an infected necrosis, or hemorrhage. We've already spoken about the hemorrhagic pancreatitis. Yes, that's um, related to Cullen's and Gray-Turner signs. Yeah, and it can have a pretty high mortality. So, moving on, tell me, what is the difference between an abscess and a pseudocyst? Well, neither of them is a cyst, I can tell you that much. (laughs) Yeah, very true. A cyst, as of course we all know, is a collection walled with an epithelial lining. A pseudocyst is also a collection, but the lining is instead actually made of a fibrous scar tissue. It's a common complication of pancreatitis due to the inflammation causing scarring and third spacing. It's usually actually picked up a few weeks after the acute presentation. They tend to be watched and waited on rather than really undergoing any sort of intervention. Meanwhile, an abscess has no lining at all. It's just an inflammatory collection of pus. This can lead to a systemic infection, so here ultrasound-guided drainage and culture, subsequently, is more commonly undertaken than the whole watch-and-wait process. Okay, so local complications include pseudocyst, in which you'd watch and wait, and abscess, where radiologically-guided percutaneous drainage with MCNS would be appropriate. Any systemic complications, then, beyond those? So this is all to do with the third spacing and the hemorrhaging. Hypovolemic shock, aka where there is not enough blood in the circulation, leading to a blood pressure collapse and inadequate perfusion to organs, can be fatal, point one. ARDS is also a potential life-threatening complication. And alongside these, because pancreatitis messes with fluid balance, electrolyte derangement can occur. And hypocalcemia is very common. So much so that if a patient on admission has normal calcium, that suggests hypercalcemia was the likely cause in the first place. Remember, get smashed, hypercalcemia. Because it is typically lower than normal when they come in. Glucose homeostasis, because it's controlled by the endocrine pancreas, can also become dysregulated. However, it's quite complicated and it can be high or low, so maybe a bit more fine print. Okay, so simply then, the systemic complications are hypovolemic shock, ARDS, hypocalcemia, and blood glucose changes. Yes, and I think with that, we're done. Hi everyone, this is Sally and I'm here with your summary of acute pancreatitis. So the causes of acute pancreatitis can be remembered by get smashed with the main two causes being gallstones and ethanol. So therefore it's common at those in risk of gallstones to think about the five F's and those with alcohol dependency. It presents with vomiting and epigastric pain. The pain tends to radiate left along the back. A key differential to rule out in older men is a triple A. 
Signs and examination can include a temperature, severe apogastric tenderness, Cullen sign, Gray-Turner sign and ascites. Investigations include blood tests such as pancreatic amylase and lipase. A Glasgow IMRI score of three or more is suggestive of severe pancreatitis. The score is calculated using routine blood tests including an ABG and a calcium level. Diagnosis is often made on clinical grounds, but an abdominal ultrasound can look for gallstones and a CT abdo pelvis can show pancreatic necrosis. Pancreatitis is mainly managed supportively. Patients can require HDU and ITU admission. Medically, we can give IV fluids, antiemetics and analgesia. If alcohol is the underlying cause, chlordiaz epoxide and pabronex are often appropriate. Local complications would include a pseudocyst abscess or haemorrhage. Systemic complications include hypovolemic shock, hypocalcemia, ARDS and blood sugar changes. That's all. Thanks for listening. Bye.